Welcome back to God Books, the podcast where we talk to booksellers all around the world. And today we are going to the United States, to Madison, New Jersey, to a bookshop with the most fitting of names, The Nature of Reading. Now the concept of this bookshop feels quite unique to me, pulling together the joy and wonder of the natural world with the knowledge and passion to fight for its survival. It is an environmental bookstore, and it specializes in seasonal reading, nature writing, and climate change books, helping spread the messages of local environmental groups and leading both children and adults to reconnect with nature and reading. I love so many things about this bookshop, how it began as a pandemic quest for more meaning, how young and brave Haley, its founder, is, how it first started as a pop-up bookshop and then with community support turned into what it is today, how it has a tree inside the shop, Okay, it's not a real tree, but not all kids can tell. And especially how it wants to raise awareness and action when it comes to the climate crisis by taking a gentle approach rooted in love and appreciation for nature. Here's my conversation with Haley. Good morning, Haley, right? Because it's morning for you. And <laughs> thanks for joining me today on, on God Books. I'm really excited to, to talk to you today and to find out more about the nature of reading. So I thought we could start the way we usually start these conversations with a tour of the bookshop. I'm obviously not in the U.S. at the moment, so maybe you can walk us through your shop. What does it look like? What does it feel like? Anything you want to tell us that would kind of take us there? Yeah, so thank you for, for having me on the podcast. The tour wouldn't take too long for the shop because it's, it's quite small. I moved from a pop-up into the storefront. The storefront's only about twice the size of a big market tent. So you walk in, there's some cases right at the front, but usually what people notice right away is how the shop smells. I always have some like diffusers going with some nice nature-y scents. I was actually heavily inspired by one of my favorite bookshops who you've, you've interviewed on the podcast, The Golden Hair in Edinburgh, because oh, every yeah. time I walk in there, especially when they had the fireplace going, it would smell so good. So that stayed in my mind. And that's almost always what people comment on first when they come into the space. The shop is only about like 250 square feet, maybe the smallest <laughs> bookshop in New Jersey, possibly. We have our main wall of shelves that has our main categories, nature writing, climate change, eco-fiction and things. Um, there's a big 10-foot window where the sun shines in really strongly in the afternoon. I tried to keep everything quite like light and airy to really like amplify the sunlight when it comes in. So in the window, I have like display books that people like to look at when they're walking by. And then there's like larger books at the bottom, like cookbooks, gardening books, craft books, things like that. The other main part of the store is the children's section where there's a very large tree, <laughs> a um, paper mache tree that I made after opening the shop because I, I really just wanted a big statement piece in the kids section. And it's one of the best things because every kid that comes in is like, is this a real tree? And then they like sit on the grassy green rug read under the tree and they look at the bird um this little like bird that I have in a nest um in the tree so 
And then I just have a few other cases around that have puzzles and a few other sections, as well as a table that has my seasonal reading selections that changes every month. But the overwhelming vibe is airy, nature, healing. There's a lot of unfinished wood and things because I really wanted to emulate the outdoors in the shop, which really fits with the rest of the ethos of the store. I just love that you made a tree <laughs> and, and I just said <laughs> that you, you are in the shop now. So I got to see the tree and it's such mm-hmm. a great idea. And I think this is one of my favorite parts about independent bookshops, especially the fact that you, you can use this space in whatever creative way you can imagine, right? So you, you can go crazy with it if you want. You can keep it simple and serious and elegant and quiet, or you can go really wild and and that's the it's just the beauty of it i mean there's not that many spaces that can do that and i think that's just amazing and i love the smell uh bit because <laughs> i recently went to a bookshop here in spain that had the same thing they had incense in the shop and i thought oh such a great idea because you really then especially this this shop was on a busy street and outside there were you know cars and noise and and then you just walked into this space and just because of the smell it felt almost sacred in a way like now you're in in a different dimension it's so nice to engage I try to engage like all of the different senses besides taste I guess I always have calming music playing usually like something Celtic or like instrumental um I really want people to feel like they can spend time in here. And a lot of people say that it feels more like a they're coming into a home than a, a shop, which is, um, yeah, something that I always enjoy, enjoy hearing. That's really nice. Um, and I want to talk, I want to talk also about the concept of your shop. But before I do that, I, as you were talking, I was thinking how different the approach is of someone working in an independent bookstore and trying to create this perfect atmosphere and really caring about the space versus chain bookstores. Because I, at some point, um, was listening to a podcast about a, a bookshop that is not a chain, but they have, well, I guess it's becoming a chain. They have four different bookshops in New York. And the owner of of the bookshops was talking about how she's thinking of the buildings in terms of real estate and how she's designing the bookshop so that it's a perfect balance between people coming in and feeling welcome, but not staying too long, right? Because that would be <laughs> the opposite of a lot of sales in a day. And I just yeah. think it's, it's so interesting, right? Because when you're, you have one space and your goal is for people to feel welcome and, and to keep coming back and you don't mind if they spend time there. And I just think that it's really nice. And that's why we should have independent bookshops <laughs> in the world. Yeah, it is something that I thought a little bit about because my shop is so small. If there was ever a point when there's like, I don't know, 10 or 20 browsers in here, we would all be like completely packed. <laughs> the shop is in a very small town. I live here in this town as well. And because of that, I've never had a moment yet where it's too crowded. And it's really nice when there's just one group in or a couple of small groups and I can talk with them one-on-one. Um, being in a small town, it's nice. I don't have to think about turnover of terms of customers in the shop and I can really like connect one-on-one with people, which is one of my absolute favorite parts of, of book selling. And Haley, tell me a little bit about what is an environmental bookstore. So as I was telling you before we started the recording, I live in the south of Spain. 
it's very, very hot here in the summer. So one of our constant concerns is climate change. And so we started thinking about this idea of a bookshop that focuses on climate change in some way. And it was just as vague as that. So I started to search online to see, are there bookshops in that kind of niche? And surprisingly, there are not that many. And yours was, I think, the only one I found that really zoomed in on that in a physical location as well. I think there's a couple of online ones. So can you tell me more? What, what is an environmental bookstore? What is the concept behind it? How did you come to that? Yeah, so my background is more in the humanities and I used to manage a used and rare bookstore in town and I did my master's in book history. I was always very much strongly on the, the humanities side of things. But of course, as you were saying, in the recent years, it just becomes impossible to ignore the climate crisis and everything that's happening. I've written about this a lot in my newsletters and things, but the the pandemic was a really big shifting point for me because before the pandemic, just thinking about climate change would cause me to spiral into a huge existential crisis. I found it very overwhelming and I, I couldn't see a path forward with any actions that I could take. And then with the pandemic, obviously that was a really tough period for everyone in the whole world. And it just made me think if we can adapt to these massive changes so quickly, there's definitely collective action that we can take with the climate crisis and spending all those many months thinking about these heavy things of life and death with the pandemic going all around us really just put things in perspective for me. And I found that I was able to look at the climate crisis with less intimidation. Of course, a book is what literally inspired me. I read the Uninhabitable Earth by um, David Wallace Wells. And it's funny because when I was studying, I did my degrees in the UK. So I was over there for five years right before the pandemic. And I remember seeing that book in a bunch of bookstores. And I don't know if you know the cover, but it's all white. And then there's just like a dead bee. And that's the only thing. <laughs> that's on a the good cover. cover, yeah. Yeah, so... I was drawn to that, but then I would read one or two pages and just get so sad. Because <laughs> I would say that is a book if you want to like feel the like urgency and the true horrors of the things that are possible. If we don't change our ways, I'd say that book is really good for that. So I was able to read that and started thinking like, wow, I really want to do something that helps in some small way. And because of my background in bookselling, um, at the time I had just come back to the US and was managing the antiquarian bookstore in my town. I kind of kept these ideas floating around in my mind for a while. Originally as well, I wanted to do something that was very strongly climate change focused, but of course that's not the best <laughs> business model because it is a bit of a tough sell sometimes to get people to learn about the climate crisis, think about these very like heavyweight things. So yeah. I realized if I was going to be talking about that, I needed something else to bring in to the shop. And that's when I thought, how can we think about 
the climate crisis and climate change without also thinking about nature and appreciating nature. We really need that reconnection in order to feel motivated to take action. We really need to have that reverence for nature. So I brought those two ideas together. And then I started thinking about as well during during the pandemic, seasonal reading. A lot of my favorite online creators were talking about pairing books with the seasons. And I've never seen a very strong focus on that in the bookselling world. So that just seemed like the natural third thing to group in. I had the idea for a while and eventually the opportunity came up for me to have this shop that's very like focused on those three areas. And during my pop-up, that was definitely the case. And thankfully, the interest in these topics has remained since I've moved into into the storefront. My small town is very eco-conscious. So that's been something that I'm very, very grateful for. Oh, I really like that. And I like, I mean, obviously there, there are three distinct categories, but there's such an obvious thread between them. And I think you you cannot really care about climate change, but not care about nature, right? I mean, you can't, I mean, you could be very selfish and just be like, no, climate change affects me as a human and I don't care, but it's, it's very unlikely. Um, and I, I think that that approach also makes, I would imagine makes people more inclined to take action rather than have that kind of doomsday approach. Well, there's nothing I can do anyway, so I might as well do nothing. Which I'm seeing actually with a lot of my friends, I'm not blaming them, but it's because we have so much information about how bad it is, right? And how little impact we can have as an individual. So I find that some of the people I know that are most informed by climate change are likely to do the least about it because of this just overwhelming sensation of there's nothing I can do. And I think if you pair that with something positive, with a positive association of appreciation of nature, seasonal reading, then you have more of a chance actually of getting getting people to change. Um, yeah, I, I work in the field of education now, and I think it's really interesting that we talk a lot about climate education. And one of the programs that has worked the best in changing mindsets for teachers to talk about climate education in schools has actually been a very immersive experience where they go and spend time in nature and cook their own food. And and then in that context, they start to get appreciation about why this is important. So mm-hmm. anyway, I just wanted to share that because I think it goes along the same lines. Like it might not seem related. Why does a teacher have to cook his own food? But once they realize the importance of it, then they're more likely to be climate educators, right? And kind of all goes together. Definitely. I think that's why it's really important, especially here um, in the U.S., to bring in the um indigenous tradition of the relationship with the land. I always try to bring in books authored by indigenous writers, like Braiding Sweetgrass is one that I always recommend to people by by Robin Wall Kimmer, because it really just inspires people to have that personal connection with the land, as well as that gratitude. We often take so many things for granted today. So it's really nice to be able to tap in to feeling grateful for all that the the natural world offers. Um, and I definitely try to highlight the work of Indigenous activists throughout U.S. history and 
having that inspiration to help people reconnect a bit with nature and helping them find books that will make them, you know, be more in tune with the the changes of the seasons or with nature writing. Like I love like Mary Oliver. She really evokes the, the natural world so beautifully. So I try to lead people with those categories. And then as you were saying, I think one of the hardest things in any area of activism or social climate justice is just losing hope. That's definitely the case where I was like before the pandemic, everything is screwed up. There's nothing to look forward to. There's nothing to do, but it's totally like a mental balance that you have to have because as you're saying as well, like corporate responsibility, government responsibility is so incredibly important and we shouldn't put too much burden on ourselves, but we also have to believe in some way that we can make a difference so we don't become hopeless in that regard. One of the best parts of starting the shop has been connecting a lot more with local environmental groups. And there's like three major ones in my town, as well as a group that is advocating for, um, there's a a forest around this university in the town, um, Drew University, the Drew Forest. They're looking to build housing and destroy a large portion of the forest. So there's been this group that's really vocally advocating for the town to buy the land and to keep it um, open for students and just the general town because anyone is welcome to like go walk in there. So seeing so many people just in my small town doing so much work and really caring about the environment, it really makes you think even if these like huge corporations and governing bodies aren't taking the action that we need, there's so many smaller ways that we can come together. And I think it's really important to have that local connection. There's a lot of local action we can take and supporting each other in person, I think, can also be really beneficial. Yeah, I completely agree. It doesn't mean that we can just forget about it or be at the opposite end of it, be really desperate and anxious all day long, but do nothing either. So, And anyway, even if it's just for our mental health, it helps (laughs) to feel like you're hopeful and you're taking some sort of action. Yeah, how did the nature of reading, the name, the nature of reading come about? Because it's it's not very often for me, at least, that I find a name for something that I think, oh, this is just the perfect name for it, the most obvious name that it's something could have had, but it must have taken forever to actually get to it. You know, it's like perfect design. You use something and it's really intuitive and you think, of course, it's the only way that this could have been, but probably to get to it, it must have been a while for you, right? Oh, thanks. That makes me very happy to hear because I'm a bit of a perfectionist, um, but I do try to lean into my intuition a lot. But I did spend so long trying to think of the right name. And I was looking at other bookstores and trying to like get a feel for the kind of style that people usually go for when naming bookstores. Like it's usually something a bit longer than like another store that might have like a one word name. There's very often an element of like pun somewhere. Yeah, something is funny or something is catchy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I wanted the environmental theme to be obvious within the name to include some sort of nature word like nature or like climate. Or I was thinking so much about the term leaf, tree leaves and the leaf like page of a book. 
And I really wanted to do something with that, but that is something that has been used a bit more in other names. So eventually, (laughs) I think I was just thinking about the term nature and was thinking how it has those two different meanings, the nature found within books, like the environment within books, but then also what does it mean to read? Like what is the actual nature of reading? How does it relate to the rest of the world and our lives and things? I think I wrote it down and I like instantly knew (laughs) this is it. So when people get the two meanings, it it makes me very happy. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. I really, really like it. I had an idea at one point for a book club where you would read um, what was it again? Hold on. I have a lot of random <laughs> ideas that I don't actually, as opposed to you, I don't turn them into reality. So yeah, it was a book club what? where in one month you'd have a theme and then on that theme you would read a nonfiction book and a fiction book, always on that one theme. And I was going to call it In Two Minds, which I thought was very clever because it had a pun and it was like two and I was so excited. And then, I don't know, I dropped <laughs> But I just love the nature of reading. I think it's such a great name. I would definitely walk into a place called The Nature of Reading, even if I knew nothing about it. So I really like it. (laughs) And then the other bit I found really impressive, not just the name, is that your bookshop started as an online and pop-up bookshop on Earth Day, not the least. And then you actually turned that into a physical store, which I just find so impressive because I know from having spoken by now to so many booksellers that that's a really hard thing to do from finding the the perfect location to then just going through the whole process of selecting the books, setting everything up, setting up the business, you know, becoming an accountant overnight, all those kind of things. And I wonder if you can tell me more about that. Did you do it all on your own? How how did that setup process work out? Because I know we have a few listeners. I know in particular that we have a recent listener who is also from the US but living in Europe who wants to open a bookshop in Italy. And we were talking a little bit online about just, it must be hard, right, to get it off the ground and start it. So since you've done it so recently, maybe you can share a bit about how that went. Yeah, so it was definitely, in some ways, it was a longer process. And in some ways, it was a shorter process than I would have imagined. I mean, definitely when I started my business on Earth Day in 2022, I did not think that by the end of the year, I would have signed for a storefront, especially because the town is is pretty small. Um, I think the population is like 16 or 17,000. And something that's really nice about this town, Madison, is that they have like a really strong like chamber of commerce that really promotes local businesses. So the spaces are usually filled in our downtown areas. And I know that like rents can be quite high. Even though I started the pop-up and stuff, I was thinking that that would be much further down the line. But to go from the beginning, I had been thinking about these things a lot during the pandemic. I was working at managing the antiquarian bookstore and eventually I kind of came to a point where I either had to fully commit to go that route and stay in the antiquarian book world. Um, I felt... Which is a very different world, right? Than selling new books from what I understand. Yeah. It's almost like a different industry altogether, I imagine. It really is. And I, I still love that world, but I have to say it was a little bit different 
going into it as a young woman, there's still a lot of traditional (laughs) ways of being in those types of stores. And something that I've really realized in the past several years that's really important to me is having like creative freedom and autonomy. I love connecting with people and that's a little hard when people kind of dismiss you right away because they assume that you don't know as much as like an older person or other like men who happen to be in the store. So that was always a bit challenging for me. I love the men who happen to be in the store. <laughs> Some guys just happening to be there and you're most knowledgeable of them all. But obviously people will go to them with questions. Yeah, I can I can see that. Yeah. It's it's surprising how much of that, you know, that sexism still exists. So between that and just thinking about my focus during my academic studies was mainly on medievalism, medieval literature. And I was like really into history and all of that. But my focus kept moving more and more <laughs> towards the present and the future. So I really got interested in the idea of new books because of the much wider diversity of voices that are being published right now versus even like 20 plus years ago. And I really wanted like up-to-date nature climate information with the secondhand trade, you're really limited in what you can have. Like it's really hard to curate a specific collection. One of the most impactful things that someone I had worked with said to me, um, I've done a lot of business training with this like local nonprofit organization for women in business. And one of the things that she said, the one I was working with said to me was, what would the store promote that is beyond independent bookstore, read locally, shop locally? Like what is the sort of niche or like, what is the other meaning there? And that just really clicked things into place in my head. I was like, I started connecting all the dots in my brain. I'm about an hour outside of New York here. And there's just so many amazing niche bookstores in New York, like You and Me Books. And now recently, um, The Ripped Bodice opened. And there's just so many cool genre-specific small bookstores. I was like, that's what I want. So I left my job at that other bookstore my only experience with it was with used books. So I like amassed a collection of used environmental books, put that on my website. There's been so many serendipitous interactions I've had with so many like supportive people. And especially in the women business world, another woman business owner told me, oh, why don't you try doing markets? And that completely changed my trajectory. I was like, Yes, that's a great idea. Like farmers markets are places where people go when they want to like eat locally. They're very eco-conscious. Most of the customers there. The farmers market had spaces open still. So I booked every other week throughout the whole season of that, which ran from June until November. Definitely the hardest part was figuring out how to sell new books because I had no knowledge of that. I did courses with the bookstore training group tried to find all the resources that I could on ABA. And eventually I understood the process, set up an account with Ingram here, probably main distributor, small bookstores use. I borrowed a couple thousand dollars from family to build up my base inventory, which is definitely the hardest part of opening a pop-up brand store, especially because I was, I'm so bad with my own (laughs) age. 
24, I guess. You were so young. That's, it's so impressive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this age. I, I just sort of like, you know, went for it. But I, of course, at that age, I had like no capital, basically. So that was very hard to um, start out with. And I was really lucky to have my husband. He actually also works in the sustainability field. He works for a company that manages solar farms. So he was always super, super supportive of my following my dreams and especially with the environmental bookstore. So with his support, local business owners being so encouraging, friends, family, it all came together and I started doing pop-up markets. And that's kind of when I first got the feeling of being able to curate my own space. I love anything artistic, creative, crafty. And I totally went way overboard for all my market appearances. It would take like so long to do all the decor and stuff. I really loved that. And I began to grow a local following through the farmer's market. I started doing other events and a larger farmer's market in my neighboring town that would get several hundred people every day. Um, and yeah, so that's... Walk me through like a day at the market. Like what, you would wake up in the morning. Where'd you put all the books? Where were all the books the usually? <laughs> and did you just drive there with the, a million books in your car or how, how did it go? Yeah, so it's probably as messy as you might imagine. My husband and I, we live in a third floor apartment. So do you have an elevator? I hope so. No. No. Okay. <laughs> All right. So all of my books were in our apartment, which also is just a one bedroom. It's a little bit bigger than this shop. You can imagine our whole apartment was just filled with books and I'd have to like carry them all down. We also, we have a very small EV, so that wouldn't fit all of my market supplies. So every time I did a market, my family lives like 20 minutes away. I would drive there, get my family's car, which is a lot bigger. And I was able to store my tent and like tables and shelves in my mom's car. She was <laughs> very kind to let me borrow her car frequently for so it's long. It's really uh, a family affair. I'm, I'm starting to Honestly, I never could have done all of this by myself for sure. And I would drive it back. My husband and I would like load all the like six bankers boxes of books. That's usually the best size for like, you can still carry it. It's heavy, but you can still pick it up. <laughs> We'd go up and down all the stairs of our apartment. I'm sure like everyone in our building thought we were crazy moving out like every <laughs> every week. <laughs> that was also your your weekly workout. Up and down Honestly, <laughs> it was for sure. Um, and we'd load everything in the car. The Madison market was only a couple blocks away, which is really good because sometimes I would like load the car so full that I could barely see out of any of the windows. So I'd get there. It would take between an hour and a half to set everything up. And the market would run for five hours. That market was a little more quiet and People would come in and they would go mainly to two of the main farm stands that were there. And then they would wander over and everyone was just very open to talking and super excited about the idea of having books at the market. And especially all the other vendors there were like so kind and supportive. And they would also like shop at the at the store. So um, there'd be like live music often, just like looking at all these beautiful like flowers and produce and talking to people about about books. So that was a, like a really, really nice way to start 
despite the heavy <laughs> amount of physical labor. Very heavy. Yeah. Um, and yeah. during this time, you were also running the online shop or was that, would that come later? So I started the shop, yeah, Earth Day in April when I was just online. And then at the end of June is when I started doing pop-ups. Honestly, I didn't do too many online <laughs> sales before then. Still now, I really don't do a lot of online sales. I'm with bookshop.org, yeah. a really helpful way for me to sell other books that I don't happen to carry, but I don't get too many online orders. And that's something that I'm I'm fine with because I realized very soon into doing markets in June that that local focus is something that I really wanted to do. I really enjoy hand selling, talking one-on-one with people. That quickly became the whole, basically the entirety of my business doing these events. Sometimes the local environmental commission would have me at their events and then I would meet more people there. So I had my new book inventory on my website, but I would say that, yeah, the the vast majority of the business is done in person. In person, yeah. Event. I mean, I, I can I can see that. I think it's hard to imagine why without an actual physical presence and building those local connections with people. Not Not why, but it's hard to imagine how you could make people buy from you online if they don't know you. Why would they? In the vast majority of cases, it's cheaper to buy from we know who, the bigger <laughs> retailers. It's really tricky. I think without the pop-up and without the physical location, online bookshops have very little chance, right? Which, yeah, it is It is what it is. But luckily, the physical location ones, if they have a strong differentiating factor, such as kind, wonderful booksellers with great personalities who can give great recommendations, beautiful spaces, smell nice. I think all of that you cannot replicate online no matter no matter what. So you've got yeah. that going for independent bookshops. <laughs> I want to ask you, so we we talked about the story of the pop-up and, and then actually let, let's finish the story because then you went and found a venue and turned it into an actual always there bookshop as opposed to a pop-up bookshop. So how did how did that part go? And once you you did find the right venue, did everything else sort of fit into place and it, it all just happened quite smoothly or were there some some challenges along the way? Yeah, the story of how I got this storefront is really magical, I want to say. <laughs> um, right now I'm I'm doing a small book club with my friends and we're reading The Artist's Way. And that's really influencing a lot of my thoughts lately. But Julia Cameron, the author, talks about this idea of synchronicity. And I've really felt that since I've opened the store. I feel like I just, you know, started. Hi there. And sorry to interrupt, but we got very unexpectedly interrupted by a power cut. Well, I guess all power cuts are unexpected, but that's what happened. Madison, New Jersey had a very, very sudden moment of no electricity. And so Haley and I had to stop talking and we then rescheduled for another conversation another day. I really wanted to have Haley back on to hear the rest of the story. I felt like she kind of left us on a cliffhanger there. So let's hear the rest of this conversation. 
Hi, Haley, and welcome back after what feels like a very long power cut. It's nice to talk to you again. <laughs> Luckily, we're back. And I feel like we kind of ended on on a cliffhanger because you were just telling me about how you managed to find the location for your physical shop. But also you mentioned the artist's way and the concept of synchronicity. And maybe you can tell me more. what What is that and how did it kind of manifest when you were opening your shop? Yeah, so The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron is this really interesting book that has a 12-week program for creatives of all forms. And I've been reading it with a couple of friends over the past few weeks. And it's definitely made me reflect a lot, especially about her um, idea of synchronicity, which is kind of similar to the idea of manifestation. There's definitely some caveats because you have to have a certain level of, you know, privilege and stability for these kinds of positive coincidences to take place or for you to be able to take advantage of them. That's something that that Julia Cameron doesn't touch upon like too much in um, her discussion of it. But when you put things out into the world, when you take action, further actions are sort of taken on your behalf by whatever you believe in. Julia says the great creator or like the universe or things like that. I wasn't too much of a believer in things like that before I started my shop, but especially I had a, I would say, somewhat mystical experience getting my storefront. Um, I was walking home one night. It was the night of a full moon in December. So that already feels kind of magical. I was walking home from one of my my part-time jobs that I had during the the pop-up. I live like right on Main Street in my town, basically. And I was walking through Main Street and I saw this storefront. It used to be a bubble tea place. This very, very small storefront, probably the smallest in my town. It had a for rent sign. And I think I just knew then I felt something very strongly. This seems like a sign. Meant to be. Yeah, I because I looked up the rent pretty quickly after I got home. I live like two minutes away from the store. <laughs> so I, I walked back to my apartment um, and I looked up the rent and it was probably the most affordable in my town that I had heard of because the space is so small and unique in that way. So that's when I started getting more and more of like the sort of otherworldly sense that this was really (laughs) meant to be. And I I did go outside that night. I took photos of the full moon. I definitely like to print some um, for my shop. (laughs) I should, I should hang them up. But you put them on the ceiling. <laughs> yeah, or be I did want to do some sort of either cloud or star mural on the ceiling eventually. But yeah, it was it was really weird because I was at the point where doing pop-ups is a lot of like physical work and it was getting a little challenging and I felt like I couldn't really move forward that much with the business. But I also felt like a storefront was so far down the line because of knowing like the typical rent in my area and the size of the space and like building out inventory and stuff is really hard for large spaces. But 
Yeah. After that night, I contacted the real estate agent who like showed me the the space and there were a couple other people um, interested in it, even though they had only had the for rent sign up that one night because the owner of the cafe really didn't want to advertise that the space was for rent. That was one of those things where the synchronicity just matched up perfectly that I happened to be walking home and see that the for rent sign was actually there. So that really limited the amount of other applicants who were interested in the space, which was definitely in my favor. (laughs) The landlord was kind of in between me and another established business in town who just wanted to have another location. He was leaning towards them. But thankfully, the the state agent was very much like encouraging <laughs> to me and was like, you know, just write him a letter with the reasons you would like the space. You can talk to him on the phone and things. So I did, did that. You write a letter? Yeah, I, I think it's kind of scary, especially as a young woman to advocate for myself that intensely. But because I, I really felt like it was the right space. I tried not to lose hope and be like, oh, it's their space now. So I wrote him a very detailed letter and we talked on the phone and he did basically say that my letter convinced him to to rent the space to me. And soon after I was signing the lease and that was mid-December that I had signed for it. And January 1st is when the, the lease started. So yeah, after that, I just sort of went straight into three and a half months of, or almost, yeah, almost four months of intense renovations of the little space. I can't imagine how long. I mean, it was me and this very kind family friend who renovated the whole space with other help from friends and family. I can't imagine how long it would take to renovate a larger space. Yeah, especially Um, when you're doing it on your own. I mean, that's just so impressive. I (laughs) I really, really love the story. Did it feel to you in some way like a big commitment because I would imagine with the pop-ups, a lot of physical work, and I'm sure you were already committed to making it work as a business, but still having a storefront is a long-term, like you're going to be there for a while, right? You can't just pack up and go next month. So did it feel like in a way, like how it feels when you move in with someone, you know, like I'm really (laughs) doing this, I'm committing for at least a while. And was that scary in any way or not really? Yes, I don't know if it was as much a fear of the commitment as it was a fear of like, can I do this? And kind of like a fear of my own audacity to just run (laughs) forward with that. Because I think between when I saw the space and when I signed the lease, I was very much in that mindset of, I think this is meant to be like, I'm going to do what I can. So I didn't really think too much about the intimidating factor (laughs) of opening a storefront. At that point, I felt very comfortable with my pop-up setup and I really felt like I could do a space well. And like I had worked at the other bookstore in town for a while, so I, I did miss that side of things. But after signing is when I started being a lot more nervous because all that confidence that I'd built up in the past year was suddenly like, well, how much of this is really applicable to (laughs) having a actual storefront? I was definitely getting a bit nervous 
But one of the positive things about us doing the the renovation ourselves is that I think something that really helps me in a mental health way is just doing physical things. I'm very into basically any creative hobby or <laughs> pastime. So I started designing the space. I completely designed it all myself using this app on the iPad where I could like visualize things. I had a few different layouts in mind, but once I settled on that and we actually started the renovations, I really enjoyed. I always watch like, you know, home decor renovations. (laughs) (laughs) They're so fun. And I'd always lived in an apartment where I couldn't make any changes. So, I mean, I'm still renting this space, but he said that I could do anything that I wanted. Um, So it's kind of like a blank slate that I had to work with. So it's really fun to like, we had to completely rip out the floors and a lot of the wall was covered with tile. So we had to take all of that off. Um, There's like a big beam on the ceiling that we got rid of where like cabinets had hung before. Just moving from that into painting and working with tools that I hadn't before. I've always wanted to use power tools, but (laughs) I've never had the space or the access to them. So learning about that was really really fun. And I think like the physical side of the renovations really helped stabilize any worry that I felt because working so much with my hands and actually like working in the space really helped me spend some other time thinking about more practical things like my business plan, the inventory that I had to build up to fill the space a bit better. Um, Yeah. I mean, I just, I just can't believe you did all that physical work and the inventory and like, there's so many talents. I'm beyond <laughs> impressed. And I was thinking before we started recording now again that, I mean, I'd have to go back and check. I cannot be certain, but I'm pretty certain that you are by far the youngest bookshop founder I've ever <laughs> interviewed on Books. I just think it's so impressive how many things you did on your own, especially being this young. And I'm just just really, really impressed. And I also like about the story that how you got the space, the fact that you wrote a letter, which I think to me is proof that there's still hope in the world, because especially when it comes to real estate, you know, we have, I think many of us sometimes this very business-like approach that People will prefer to rent their space to whoever pays more or whoever is more reliable business-wise or whatever. And I also remember that I wrote a letter once to get an apartment. <laughs> I was <laughs> renting in, in Berlin and Berlin is like notorious for being horrible to rent in. And I would go to all these viewings with sometimes a hundred people queuing up to see the apartment and you'd leave thinking, okay, well, I'm just going to be homeless. There's just no way. I'm never going to find a place. And I saw a place once and I thought, and my mom told me, just write them a really nice email. So I wrote them this email in which I offered, you know, to cook them a dinner if they would give me the apartment. And I like, yeah. I wrote a bunch of really ridiculous things because I really wanted the place, <laughs> but also because I felt like I had felt this cosmic thing that it had to be mine. So, mm-hmm. and it worked, you know, and I got the place and that's where my daughter came home after she was born. And that was her, her first place. And and afterwards, I thought about how, you know, they didn't have to give it to me. There were so many other people who, who wanted it. But in the end, sometimes I think there's power in really saying what you want and why you want it. And people will respond to that. And I think that's that's really nice that you did that and that it worked. I'm so glad. Yeah, it's definitely like with the artist's way, you have to both be open to the opportunity. Like you can't shut yourself down and be like, oh, I'll never get it. Making that effort to 
write the letter and verbalize that feeling that you had inside that this is meant to be, I think then things sort of start to fall into place and there's a lot more likelihood for there to be a synchronistic reaction where where things end up working out in that way. So I think you'd really enjoy the artist, right? <laughs> I'm recommending it to so many people now that I'm reading it, but which really- I will read, which I ordered right after yeah. your power cut. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm still waiting to, to receive it. How many books are in your shop? I think between 750 and 850. Not not too many. <laughs> Quite a lot. Yeah. What was the last book you sold in your shop? I think the last one that I sold was a children's book, the tree book. I can't remember the author. It's like a board book where it shows different stages of a tree throughout the year. And it's really unique because it has transparent pages where you can kind of see the different stages that a, a tree goes through. So I thought that was a fun one. That's nice. What would you do if you couldn't sell books anymore? I used to think that I would go into an academic field as a librarian or something. But I I think after this experience, I definitely would do something a little more based in creativity or or freelance. I would probably try to do like an online shop as as an artist or or something like that. Interior design or something. (laughs) Yeah, that would be fun. What book are you reading at the moment? So I'm reading right now The Quickening by Elizabeth Rush. And finally, what is your second favorite bookshop? (laughs) <laughs> I think I, I mentioned it before, but I absolutely love The Golden Hair in Edinburgh. I think about that bookstore every day and I'm planning a, a trip back to the UK next year and nice. I definitely need to go there. They're such an inspiration and I absolutely love like everything about, about their shop. I want to ask you now, I mean, this is a really nice story, really magical. And I think this idea of working in a bookshop is also quite magical for so many people. And I know that there's people listening who think of book selling as this very romantic experience <laughs> where you sit in a shop and you've got the music and you've got incense and you sell the books and it's just so nice. But oftentimes on, on this podcast, I spoke to booksellers about the more financial side of the business or the industry at large, how it's affected by online book selling, especially by the likes of Amazon, those kind of things. And when we get into those discussions, sometimes it's a little bit less magical, uh, but not always. Some booksellers have told me, no, no, I'm, we're making it work and it's not that bad. So I'm also kind of curious to understand that side of things. Now that you've been open for a while, I mean, you don't have to tell us how much money you're making, but you know, how is it going? Is it a sustainable business? Because I also love that there was a bubble tea place being replaced by a bookshop. Usually it's the other way around. <laughs> it's great. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I'm just curious to know if it's working basically and if your little town is a good place to make a bookshop succeed. When I found out that I had gotten the space in December, I was like, okay, I want to do this. This is right. But I didn't have the capital to like renovate the space because basically we had been like bootstrapping (laughs) so far, which I find to be a funny term, but just sort of like self-financing. And my husband has always been really supportive in helping me cover our, our shared expenses as I sort of like went down this financial (laughs) 
journey of starting my own business. It's a big investment that doesn't pay off really right away. Um, well, I think it pays off in other ways, but not, you know, financially. Not financially. <laughs> right away. Thankfully, there's this business group for women business owners in New Jersey, the WCC, and they happen to be based in the town right next to me, even though they're for all of my state. I'd been working with them for a while. Through them, I'd come to like consider the idea of crowdfunding. I ended up choosing a website that's just for like women entrepreneurs. So in January, I launched the crowdfunding campaign. The renovations and the whole shop would not have been possible without all of the crowdfunders who very generously donated a lot of money. I didn't reach my final goal, which was twenty two thousand, but we we're able to raise like over fourteen thousand dollars. That's amazing. How and how did you make that happen? Because I know that crowdfunding campaigns are they're tough because a lot of people are crowdfunding for a lot of things. So how did yeah. you make yours stand out? Or what was the winning strategy there? So the whole thing with crowdfunding is that almost always it happens between people who are already in the community, who you know, or know people who you know. So I think I got probably very few people who just happened to like stumble across the bookshop on the crowdfunding website. The site that I did crowdfunding with is called iFundWomen. They make it very clear that a lot of the effort has to be on your part, reaching out to people. And that was really intimidating for me. And that's something I still struggle with today because I, I really hate like... And that art. all women struggle with in general. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's so tough because it feels like it was very intimidating. And something that helped me with that was um, doing different tiers that have different rewards and... I still, you know, things have been so, so crazy since opening. I still have to send out um, a lot of the rewards for the crowdfunding. The campaign ended at the end of April after I just opened the store, but there's reward like tote bags and bookmarks and some discounts and stuff in the shop. But I think being able to think about what fun things I could offer, of course, it doesn't equate directly to the monetary amount that they were paying or else that would just sort of be like me selling something. <laughs> yeah, but but, um, a, not exactly crowdfunding yet. <laughs> yeah, but it was still nice to try to think of lower cost things that I could offer. That really helped me mentally be okay with trying to advertise that a lot. I was really lucky having already done my pop-up for quite a bit being able to already have that base community and a few hundred newsletter subscribers that I could sort of advertise my campaign to. And I was able to post about it in my local Facebook groups. That was really helpful with getting people who maybe didn't know about the store before excited, but they were still based in the community. You're kind of asking people to make an investment that like something that they can enjoy in their town will be there later. I, I still wouldn't have been able to afford the renovation if family friend Charlie, if he hadn't helped me with all the renovations, that was just, yeah, that was really the thing that allowed me to just focus that money on on the materials that went into everything. So I'm yeah. grateful, grateful. If you had that. to pay someone as well, that would be yeah. The, the labor costs are, are really are really big, so that was really nice, and I couldn't do, of course, all the skilled things that he could do, but it was yeah. fun. I to 
try to help as I as I could and to learn things as well about the the renovation process. And since then, so those funds went primarily to the materials and then a, like a little bit was towards the building out my initial inventory. Since then, it's been, I think because again, I'm very lucky with the small space. Um, I mean, it's it's a hindrance in some ways. I have to be like creative for events and be very careful about what I bring into the space and things. But my expenses are pretty low um, because of the rent is very low. Utilities are included. The biggest financial burden is definitely like the books themselves. Um, so and, and you don't have other employees at the moment, right? Is it just you or? Yeah, it's just me. I was sick in August with COVID and that was really scary because I was just coming back from a vacation with my husband in Mexico for two weeks. The shop was closed then. And then I come back and I immediately <laughs> find out that I have COVID. And I was like, oh my God, am I going to have to have the shop closed for like three weeks? I knew that August was going to be tough financially, but thankfully two very kind friends who I had met through the shop were able to step in and cover some of the days. And then my husband did one of the days as well. So I often yeah. get like friends or family if I happen to really need <laughs> to. It's, it's like having a kid, right? <laughs> Just, yeah. You can never leave them unsupervised. Yeah. Thankfully, because of all the time I spent working at the other bookstore in town, I'm kind of used to having to, to be somewhere all the time. And for like my own mental health, it really helps to have a space where I can go to that isn't in my apartment when I was doing the pop-up because that would only be like once a week, once every two weeks. And that would leave me a lot of time to like stew in my own <laughs> thoughts. And... Yeah, be, be with yourself for too long in a closed yeah. uh, space. <laughs> exactly. So I'm definitely happy to go out into the, the store every day. Right now, I'm working on trying to build things outside of books, more into the business. I recently launched my book clubs. I think of them as so trying to bring in some other financial stability in that way. I think events are something that's really nice that brick and mortar bookshops can do. And that's something that I really wanted for a long time. So it's definitely one of the most exciting things that I can do with the storefront. And it's really funny because the space is so small. I did this one event for the summer solstice and Everyone was just like sitting at a really long table in the store. It looked like we're all at a formal dinner for people who are walking by <laughs> in the evening. Um, but yeah, having the book clubs, the first one's actually starting this week. And I also sell some limited merchandise like tote bags and mugs. I'm slowly working on trying to build sustainable alternatives to books into the store because at my pop-up, I used to sell a bunch of crafts that I would make myself, crochet things, book sleeves, flower frames. But the problem with those handmade items is that they take so a long to time. <laughs> <laughs> They're not really sustainable financially in that way. So now I got a Cricut machine, which has been really helpful. That's why I make the mugs, cutting out my logo and stuff on that. Of course, books will always be the basis. Children's books especially are very popular in my store. I never thought that I would fall in love with children's books selling as much as I have, but especially because I have that little corner with the rug and the tree. Seeing kids' reactions and hearing their unfiltered thoughts is just the sweetest thing. So I really love helping 
young kids find picture books or slightly older kids find like chapter books. So that's been a really, <laughs> a really nice part of the, the business too. Yeah, I, I had no idea about children's books before I had a kid. And then now feel like I go into bookshops and I do my book shopping and then something for her. And they're just so beautiful. So many of them have incredible illustration, incredible stories even that are, I don't know, just totally different than my idea of children's books, which is like, ah, children's books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they're, they're not they're silly great. in any way. And they're works of art sometimes. They're really gorgeous. Definitely. So I just, I, I love this story. I also, I already said it, but I, I love how you're this young and you have this many talents and you've managed to put a bookshop together, which is amazing. I'm only still dreaming of it and I'm much, much, much older, but that's okay. <laughs> there's there's a day for all of us. That's all right. Um, oh. Before I let you go, what I want to talk to you necessarily is about some books. So you have different categories of books, and I don't think we'll go through through all of them, but I would like to ask your recommendations, your thoughts on some books that you think can really make us change the way we deal with climate change on an individual level. Um, maybe they'll change our minds. Maybe they'll make us take action. Books that would really that you'd think we should really read so that we can ease our anxiety a little bit and actually do something. And then... <laughs> Hopefully, we still have some time to go through a few other categories. Any other books you want to recommend in seasonal reading or nature writing, and maybe a good children's book as well, a children's book as well, if uh, <laughs> if you have one in mind. But let's start with the climate change and hopeful, action-oriented books that you can think of. In terms of helping people find books that are inspiring make them feel empowered and as though they want to take action in the climate crisis. I feel that's a very personal thing and it really depends on the person, especially if people ask me for recommendations. I try to really cater it to like context clues that I can get about them and like if they're kind of like aware of things already, maybe they don't want to read the most hard hitting intense books. Like I'd mentioned before, The Uninhabitable Earth mm -hmm. by David Wallace Wells. That's one of the ones that's very compelling. That one was really powerful for me in terms of helping me realize how so many of the things are happening now, but also so many of those negative effects that we consider to be more distant are actually a lot closer in the future. So ones like that and Naomi Klein, This Changes Everything is another one that is filled with statistics and a particularly interesting lens connecting the climate crisis to political happenings and talking about the way that our views on that intersect and the way that political and corporate choices really affect the crisis. So those, I would say, for more heavy-hitting, <laughs> deep, well-researched books. One of my top bestsellers, it's this book called Nature's Best Hope by Douglas Tallamy. It's always been something that I recommended to people. The Environmental Commission in my town, they've done talks with Douglas Tallamy and his work is really well respected. His whole theory basically, which is what this book is about, is that we should create a homegrown national park. He's American, so he focuses on the US in particular. It's about how we have so much preserved land, can only do so much we really need other spaces in which nature can also thrive. He kind of envisions, especially like here where I live in, in suburbia, where a lot of people have their own yards, people planting native plants and plants that attract pollinators and 
learning to live with nature rather than seeing it as something separate. Like that national park is where the animals live and we want our lawns to be mowed and things to be pristine. He has a really interesting perspective on that. And that's been really influential for people in my town because they're getting more into planting native plants. So I always really enjoy selling that one. Those are probably be my climate <laughs> recommendation. I've never heard of this one. And I think it sounds hopeful and it sounds like not very doomsday because I have a couple of books on my desk actually that are not mine. They're my husband's that he's reading on climate change. I'm sure you know Greta's book, The Climate Book, is like massive, like a Bible. (laughs) But I mean, I like it because it's very, it's actually really easy to read despite the fact that it's massive because it's in very short essays that are chapters, I guess. But when you read that, it does kind of give you this feeling like, oh my God, all these scientists are saying we're doomed. Apparently there's a part at the end what you can do, but till you get to that, (laughs) it takes a really long time to get to the hopeful part. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just I, I kind of always struggle with this on, on climate because I'm just also thinking of the news we read all the time. I read a lot of The Guardian, for example, and I think they generally have very good reporting. But when it comes to climate, I always have the feeling that they are very doomsday as well. We're screwed, basically. And I keep thinking, what value does this journalism have? Because it's just going to make people feel more anxious, do less. What is yeah. the point? <laughs> Even if it's accurate, where are we yeah. going to get with this? Yeah, I think that's a problem with a lot of climate books and just a lot of self-improvement books. And I think I'm a very practical person. I'm very idealist, but at the core, I feel grounded, practical. And I love reading nonfiction, of course. And I have this section in my shop called Navigating Life. I try to curate not necessarily what would be marketed as like self-help books, but books that inform better ways to live, like 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman and like How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell, like The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, things like that that just help people better navigate (laughs) this modern world. My problem with those books and similar with climate books is that so often it's so many pages of very sad (laughs) information or being like this is our problem with our society we don't have time for anything all these negative things and it's like yes that's true at the end there will be tacked on just like a list of 10 things you can do yeah exactly it's one chapter at the end maybe or one page and I don't think that balance is right so that's why I'm less inclined to like unless people ask me directly I kind of more point people towards nature writing more towards that side of things because I feel like that is much more motivating and provides that foundation. I think it's a larger problem with journalists and authors who don't include enough action items and like action items for people who are have different amounts of time available and different, you know, disabilities or or mental health problems. I think that that needs to be changed. But in the meantime, I really enjoy like recommending some of the other ones that you had mentioned before thinking about nature writing recommendations like braiding sweetgrass is one of the top selling books at the shop because first of all it's just beautifully written and it really encourages that appreciation and gratitude towards nature that's something that we really need to have and to feel that connection in order to take action we can get so like disconnected reading about all these 
terrible climate happenings, that hopelessness can set in really quickly. So having hope is really important, seeing the work that Indigenous activists have long been doing and thinking about our innate connection with nature and how we're not separate from it, I think is really helpful. My other top seller is um, Upstream by Mary Oliver. I actually have a quote by her on the back of my bookmarks. Let me see if I can remember it (laughs) off the top of my head, but it's informed my my whole business. Um, I just pulled it up here. The quote is, so it comes first, the world, then literature, and then what one pencil moving over a thousand miles of paper can perhaps sometimes do. That's like, really nice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I love Mary Oliver and I'm I'm more of a prose person than a poetry person. So that's why I really love Upstream, which is like a collection of essays about those very things like nature, writing, books, her life growing up. And it really makes me think those three things that are mentioned in the quote, the natural world, books and art in general, and then creation. So for her, it's writing, but People can be creative in so many different ways. I feel like having all of those things together can really keep up the motivation to take action, like reading books where like I was just talking about with like nature writing where things are more positive or even like ecofiction, like solar punk ecofiction that's more positive than like a lot of dystopian ecofiction Um things like that, plus being able to express ourselves creatively in whatever way is most resonant for us. I think those are really important, sort of like the trilogy of things that we can tap into and keep in mind when we're thinking about how to both feel fulfilled as people and translate it into action for this big, the biggest issue that we've, (laughs) that we're facing as humanity right now. (laughs) I really like this approach. I I think I've never heard of this approach described in this way. I'm pretty sure I haven't. I I really like that idea of not just looking at it from one angle and the fact that as you grow your appreciation for nature and what it does on its own and the magic of it, then you're also more likely to take actual action (laughs) to do something about the climate crisis, right? Because I think more and more climate denial and climate anxiety are pretty much leading to the same thing. Like if you think it doesn't exist, or if you think it's too big of an issue and there's nothing I can do about it, ultimately it results in the same thing and you're doing nothing at all about it, right? So it's a bit of a dilemma. No, how do we tackle something that's so large in perhaps small ways, but if we all dealt with it in small ways, there's so many of us. So ultimately there would be some sort of impact. Yeah. Is there a children's book you would like to recommend as we come near the end of our discussion, but to end on a children's book, happy note? Yes. My absolute favorite children's book author is um, Phoebe Wall. She wrote Little Witch Hazel. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah I, oh, that's nice. You love her. She grew up in Washington State, I believe. She was homeschooled in a very nature, art-based environment, and I feel like that's really reflective in her illustration and writing style. It's very like whimsical, which I love. And especially her most recent children's book, Little Witch Hazel. It's so nice because it's divided into the four different seasons. And this little 
gnome elf character, little witch hazel, sort of like going around her community and doing what she can. I think that's really nice. And that's like the one that I always recommend to people because I think it makes a beautiful gift book. The book design in itself is really nice. The covers and the dust jacket and everything. And then the little messages. Phoebe Wall is really good at touching upon what matters to us most as humans and discussing that connection with the natural world. She has a couple other children's ones that are slightly more heavy in terms of their subject matter. Little Witch Hazel is a good one to start with because the illustrations are so beautiful. And yeah, Phoebe Wall is great. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good one. I would add one that you probably know. It's by an author. I actually don't know where she's from. I think her name, her last name is um, Galias, Ro- Roxanne Marie Galias, something like that. And she writes these books about a character called Miyuki, who's a Japanese little girl. And very often the grandfather shows up as well. And it's like a little conversations between them. And they're always surrounded by beautiful gardens and plants. And they have one on meditation where Miyuki's supposed to get really patient, but she can't because she's a child. And then there's one where she's supposed to go to bed. <laughs> and they're always in nature. They're always taking walks. And it's always just so lovely and peaceful and I'm keeping them I have all three but I'm keeping them away from my daughter because she's at this age where she wants to rip them apart I'm like no these are for later (laughs) when you will learn to appreciate (laughs) the beauty of this illustration but Mm -hmm. I think I can kind of see them in your shop I have this idea that they could fit there among nature (laughs) I haven't heard of them before but looking at them online now they definitely seem very fitting pretty (laughs) yeah they look super nice (laughs) So Haley, before I let you go, final, final question. Since we talked about synchronicity and magic and how it all came together, is there like a wish that you have for your shop, something that you wish is going to come true this year that maybe you can speak out to the universe now on God Books and we're all going (laughs) to cheer for you, hoping it's going to (laughs) happen? Yeah, I, I would really hope to increase the reach of my shop. I would love to build up more of an online community. Most of my work has been focused locally. I would love to start up larger conversations with people online. I'd also like to bring in more people from my surrounding towns or maybe even because we're just like a, a short train ride from New York, having people come out to the small town and see the the shop and then also enjoy all the other really nice like small local businesses we have around. But Yeah, I'd like to start up more of a conversation online to be able to bring more people into the shop, have more events and maybe do other types of media like blogs and additional newsletters and things to be able to get more people's perspectives and talk about these things in in a broader way. Well, that sounds like a good wish. It also sounds like you need another 10 hours to your day, but... um... (laughs) If only... (laughs) But we'll be here looking out for you and hoping that all that will come true. And um, yeah, thank you so much for for talking to me today and the other day. (laughs) And we'll keep an eye out for all your great book recommendations online. I hope you have a great rest of your week. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is is really fun. Thank you for listening to God Books today. If this podcast brings you some joy, makes you feel closer to the world of books and bookshops, please share it with just one friend that you know will appreciate it. 
We'll be back soon with more bookseller conversations. Until then, sit back, relax, and enjoy a good book.